This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, is out this week. So as 2019 is coming to a close, we'll bring in our favorite paleontologist, George Phillips, from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. He's here to let us know about the state of paleontology in Mississippi and also about the red-hot truck stop right outside of Meridian. Also in studio with us, Jerry Case, the paleontologist that brought this fossil hotbed to the attention of the world. Also at the beginning of the show, we're going to talk about some tips for keeping your pets safe during the holidays. Join our conversation with a phone call. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464, or you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you, if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning. Hope that everyone is doing well this morning. Good morning, Kevin. Doing very good. good. It's a little cold out there. Yes, it, it's turned uh, quite cold. In fact, I got that thing where the pressure in your tires goes wonky, and I got to go uh, air up my tire because I've got that annoying. Well, it's annoying, but it's good to have it on there. But, oh, you uh, get the little signal. Right, right. Tis the season. Yes. Uh, Libby, what uh, events do you have for us? Okay. Uh, first off, just a reminder that this is a great time to get outside for many reasons. And today, is, I think it's sunny pretty much all over the state, even though it's cool. Bundle up and find somewhere to take a walk outside. It's good for stress relief, mm-hmm. which we all need when we're thinking <laughs> oh. of our Christmas list. So you might mentally be thinking about what you got to do next, but at least go outside and look around, breathe some fresh air, have a good time. It's a great time to take the kids out there. And we've been we're working on the trails. Over, yep, we're all mm-hmm. over eating, so um, we particularly need the exercise as well. And um, all over the state, uh, you should have access to state parks and city parks and nice places in the country to get outdoors. And if you want to take a pair of binoculars with you, you would probably find some interesting birds to watch. But um, then the um, event that I want to remind people of is Dinosaurs Around the World, the the big dinosaur exhibit that's been um, really having a great success at the Natural Science Museum here in Jackson. Um, And it's going to end January the 5th. So before the dinosaurs leave, but you've got a lot of good time the next two weeks to visit the dinosaurs. So if you've been once, come back. If you've not been, you really need to fill the car load up, pull up, fill the car up, and bring a car load over. And the most fun way to see it, and I hate that I won't be here, December the thirty-first. There's going to be a big glow party. Going extinct glow party, and that'll be a good goodbye to the dinosaurs for a lot of kids. Glow in the park in the dark dancing, and it's designed for children. So the hours are six to eight, and New Year's Eve will be celebrated at eight o'clock sharp. So, uh, and then everybody's ready to go home. You can go to another party, or you can go home and go to bed. And by children, you mean young and old alike, right? Yes, young and old alike. So glow-in-the-dark dancing, cupcakes, and then got to get a little science in there, of course. So live nocturnal animals will be on display, and kids will be able to get up close and natural. And uh, the big dinosaur will be walking around. Mm -hmm. um, What do they call him? Big now? I don't know. But anyway, he's uh, greets people. It's uh, the nicest um, 
Velociraptor you'll ever mm-hmm. run into. And yes, and Lucy actually, Blue, I guess, I think is yeah, I guess she's a she, right? Mm-hmm. Because she she does have flowers in her hair, and she might have some particularly nice um, accessories on for maybe the, eyelashes. For the glow I can't party. remember. <laughs> yeah, she's yeah, she's she's a very good looking <laughs> dinosaur. So anyway, that's a lot of fun. Uh, also, remember Christmas bird count. Some of them have already taken place. Some are still going to happen. If you go to um, uh, Mississippi Audubon, you'll you'll be able to catch up on all the other Christmas bird counts coming up. All right. Uh, it's interesting because I think there is a trend now to have New Year's Eve celebrations a little earlier for youngsters, but. The older I get, the, I, so I think I'm going to have to start attending them because it's harder and harder for me to get. I mean, it's like you hit midnight and like, okay, fine, let's all go to bed. See, this so. is starting to sound perfect for me. What do you think? Yeah. All right. So Christmas was a is a week from yesterday, I believe, if my uh, math is correct. Uh, it's a festive time of year, but it's time that we need to think about our pets as well. Dr. Major is not here, but our producer, Java Chapman, found some tips that we want to just go over briefly to think about uh, when it comes to holiday celebrations and pets. First of all, uh, anchor your Christmas tree down so it doesn't tip and fall over. <laughs> I know I don't really have a tree anymore because my cat uh, liked to bat the uh, the ornaments off the lower branches of the tree. Uh, he never jumped up into the tree, but I had a cat when I was in college that used to do that. So make sure uh, your tree is anchored. Also, uh, keep in mind about the water that's in there. Uh, stagnant water is a breeding ground for bacteria. Uh, your pet could end up being sick if they were to get into that. Uh, mistletoe and holly. Holly, when ingested, can cause pets to suffer nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Mistletoe can cause gastronomical upset and cardiovascular problems. So the suggestion here is maybe uh, if you have a pet around there, find some um, artificial plants made of silk or plastic, uh, and you could still uh, be very festive there. Tinsel is especially uh, difficult for cats. Uh, you know, it's something that would catch their eye. They love anything that's uh, sparkly like that. Uh, it's easy to bat around and carry in their mouths, but a nibble can lead to a swallow, which can lead to an obstructed digestive tract, a severe vomiting, dehydration, and possible surgery. So um, use uh, maybe think about not having tinsel on your tree if you have uh, your cat. And that would go with any kind of string or, you know, thread. Uh, cats, again, like to play with it, but if they ingest it, uh, there can be some trouble. What about holiday food dangers? Uh, no, you know not to feed your pets chocolate, uh, but uh, a lot of our pets will go to great lengths when they see us eating uh, to try to determine what the food is. Uh, so make sure you keep your pets away from the table and unattended plates of food. Uh, sh- secure the lids on any garbage cans, both inside and out. You never know what sort of stray animals are in your neighborhood. You don't want them getting into the garbage. Fatty, spicy, and no-no human foods, as well as bones, should not be fed to your furry friends. And if you want a treat for your pet, uh, maybe get a chew toy or one of those uh, the I think the dogs have the thing. It's that tough plastic thing that you can stick treats into, and uh, the dogs have a great time, you know, playing around with it and trying to get into the treat. And then I have uh, a brand of uh, treats that my cat likes, so I know I'll give him some of those uh, for his treat. Um, uh, maybe have a room of their own, especially if you're having a party or if you're having visitors to your house. Make sure that your pet has its own kind of quiet space that it can go to without feeling threatened by some of the new people uh, in the uh, in 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 your living living area, both yours and your pets. And also about New Year's Eve, uh, a lot of pets, you know, don't like loud noises. Uh, so make sure, again, that they have some place that they can go and feel safe uh, as we count down towards New Year's uh, with lots of fireworks. So just a couple of things to keep in mind to keep your pet safe and have a happy, healthy holiday for you and your furry friends. 
Um, let's do this. Why don't we go ahead and take our first break of the hour? We'll get back. We'll dig into things. We've got our favorite paleontologist, George Phillips, here, and we're going to talk about the Red Hot Truck Stop. Also, our guest is Jerry Case, who's been collecting shark teeth all around the world. You can call in with your comments and questions. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. More after this, so stay tuned. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Joining me on the show each week are healthcare professionals who add their expertise to the discussion. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield and our guest for the hour, paleontologist George Phillips. If you want to join our conversation with a question or comment, the number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, George, always good to have you on the show. Uh, you are the paleontology curator at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Before we come in to start talking about some current events, uh, you're always here to promote the annual Fossil Road Show. So if you would maybe give us a recap of how it went this year and any interesting things that, that may have popped up during the show. Oh, it was an, another smashing success. I, I forget what year we are into it, maybe the 18th. But it's it's one of our best events, I think. It's one of our best attended events. And the interest in fossil collecting throughout the state has not waned. If anything, it's strengthened. Of course, it's one of those activities that's, I think, strengthened because of social media. One of the good things of social media. Uh, I constantly get requests about where can we go to collect fossils uh, there are two public fossil locality fossil locality places for public fossil localities in the state for public access. <laughs> I get it out eventually, and uh, they are uh, highly attended. They, the traffic to those sites uh, is pretty consistent. Sadly, for you Central and South Mississippians, both sites are in Northeast Mississippi. <laughs> uh, we just have a very fossiliferous part of Mississippi there in the beds of Cretaceous age up there. But back to the fossil road shows. So we get fossils from all over the state, and social media and and using fossil road show on social media has allowed us to uh, discover things uh, that other people have found. And communicating these discoveries to us, things from South Mississippi in particular are, are very rare, and they're showing up on social media. And we get these people to come to the Fossil Roadshow and show them off some amazing discoveries, creatures that we didn't know we had in Mississippi. Um, and next year's Fossil Roadshow, you know, I haven't even decided on the theme yet but um, or the speaker, but I, I imagine we'll be spending some time talking about our guest today. Do we have a date? Uh, yes, the it's the first one? Saturday in March. Okay. Um, it has been for such a long time now. Yeah, that'll, that'll be here before we know it. And as you mentioned, uh, we do have a guest uh, with us in studio today. It's paleontologist Jerry Case, who's had a pr- prolific career around the world researching fossils, and as we heard uh, during the break, also donating a lot of his finds to museums. So, Jerry, thanks for joining us. If you would, tell us about how you first got interested uh, in fossils. Uh, well, I started out originally as a cartoonist um, back in the um, uh, late 30s and 40s, 
and um, I went in the Navy for four years. And then um, I was trying to get a job, and I, I, I did some uh, commercial artwork, and I, I tried to get a job in Terry Toon Studio up in uh, New Rochelle. But unfortunately, um, they wanted me to quit college and, and go to work on the following Monday. So I went back home kind of dejected. And um, I worked at a, a, a plant, a printing plant called Audley Press. And when I was there, they, they were printing a book called, called The Fossil Book by Fenton Fenton. And that's when I, um, I got interested in fossils. I uh, got some press sheets from one of the uh, printers and I brought them back to the uh, art department. And during lunchtime, when, when uh, nobody was there, I cut the, uh, the sheets apart and sewed them together and made my own book. <laughs> uh, and I carried that around for a while, look, looking for fossils. And then I went down to uh, Florida. Um, I got a little car, a Volkswagen Beetle, and I drove down to Florida to see an old Navy, Navy buddy of mine. And then um, uh, while I was going down there, I stopped off in North Carolina and picked up some fossils between the uh, ties of the railroad. They were um, uh, shell impressions and uh, casts. And that, that got me interested. And, and from there, I ended up visiting my friend and his wife in uh, Florida. I drove out to California. And um, on the Route 90, I think it was uh, uh, west, western, uh, southwestern part of uh, the country. And then I um, ended up working in the, in the, uh, in the art studios uh, uh, doing artwork. But um, on weekends, I would go looking for fossils. So one time I, I found a place uh, on the desert uh, for uh, minerals, but I um, uh, I met some uh, old couple that was collecting too, and they uh, they invited me to that trailer, and then they told me about a place where they found shark teeth. So I I uh, got a map of that, and I went out to the site at Shark Tooth Hill, in near um, uh, I guess it's up in. Um, uh, I forget the uh, uh, town. It was up north of Los Angeles. A very famous fossil site. Yeah. And then from that, I, uh, I, I got some shark teeth, and, and I didn't know what any of them were. So I went to, to our library, and I found one book with um, one shark tooth uh, identified. That got me uh, interested. And then uh, meanwhile, I got married and brought my wife back to New York. And then... Um, and uh, then I, uh, I found a place down in, in New Jersey, a uh, creek called uh, Reminiscent Brook. And I uh, started collecting shark teeth there. And I, um, I ended up becoming a, a scientist because I, I found um, a, um, a bunch of teeth that were unknown to science. And then I wrote a paper on it, my first paper. And, um, and that, that's where it all began. <laughs> it seemed like a logical progression. Yeah, so you got the the advanced copy of that book, and that kind of led you on on your journey. Um, so, you know, George, I guess that's uh, Jerry's story is uh, kind of indicative because I would think when something like this, you know, you you get a little bit of interest, you maybe read about it in books, but then when you begin to actually find them, that excitement, I guess, is kind of what fuels your passion for continuing to do it. It is, it is, and and even though. Jerry uh, wasn't in a financial situation or a professional situation to seek a higher degree. It never stopped him. He was motivated to publish, and which he did on his own and with some famous paleontologists around the world, including uh, one in particular, Henri Capetta, at Montpelier, France. We've got a couple of those articles with us today. All right, uh, more fossil talk uh, throughout the hour, but we do have a call to get to. Uh, Polly has called in from 
Covington, Louisiana today. Good morning. You're on the air with us, so go ahead. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Um, Libby, I saw a bird yesterday, my bird feeder. I've never seen anything like this. It was about the size of a quail, kind of a puffy little body. Mm-hmm. But the feathers on its back were this electric blue, like a parrot blue. And now, all right, how, Polly, where are oh, you in Covington? Okay, so you uh-huh, are so south, and you basically you saw a blue bird. Well, but it was he, a, he had the blue on his back. Okay, what el- looked, what other what else did you see? It looked like I, I ran to get my camera, and of course, when I came back, he was gone. Um, <laughs> it looked like brown underneath his body, but it was just that blue, almost like someone had painted this color on his back and i've looked in my book i can't find anything was he was he very dark was it like yeah so sometimes all right could you be seeing when the the light hits um even a starling sometimes the right way you can flash some blue but it's a dark and like you say kind of an electric sort of color um Uh, what kind of beak did the animal have kind of small one very big. Was it a sharp, like, uh, yeah, like triangular, pointy beak? Not uh-huh, a not uh-huh. a little curve on it or anything. No, 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 no. All right, so you might look at it from that angle and kind of look at the birds that are, are darker. Does that okay. make sense? And maybe too? it was just the way the light mm-hmm. was. Sh- wow, <laughs> it was how unusual it was. Yeah, um, <laughs> and, and and you know. Uh, uh, a better paleontologist or a better bird watcher can t- explain this, but I know I've been talked to about yeah. blue in feathers is a um, a strange chemical phenomenon, actually, and it's the way the light is refracted and um, you know sent to our eye from the feather, so that the blues can look very different. And a lot of birds, when the light hits just right, there is an iridescent. Color. Right, that's almost like it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I just saw it at the right time, <laughs> but it, it was so unusual. And I wanted mm-hmm. to ask. And now there are that. bluebirds around, you know, and I'm yeah. I'm seeing bluebirds. Um, it it could be that you're seeing a bluebird that, um, and you might look again at the bluebirds and see. If you're okay. seeing it that way, I, we had a lot of bluebirds in our yard not long ago, in yes. a little flock okay. moving around. Well, I knew it couldn't be a bunting. It's not that time of year, and yeah. it was too big to be a bunting. But uh, all right, well, I so look I at bluebirds and also look at, at darker. Look at you know at birds that have black feathers, basically, oh. or even look at a starling and some things like that, and see if anything yeah comes no, up. Okay, okay. Well, thank. Thank you very All right. much. All right. Thanks for your call, if Polly. Any, if anybody listening has a better suggestion. That's right. They can call one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We always like to hear what you're seeing when you go out and about. But also today we're talking about fossils uh, with two guests. We've got George Phillips here from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science and also visiting with paleontologist Jerry Case. So uh, uh, George Jerry was telling us about that book that he found, and that sort of became his inspiration. And I think during the break you told us that uh, Jerry's book was sort of one of your inspirations. Tell us about that, if you would. It was indeed. 
Yeah, so I was probably in my teens, had been collecting for a few years, and we went, uh, my mom and I, and it might have been around Christmas time, <laughs> that's when my mom usually asked me to look in the bookstore at the local mall, the Lee Mall in Columbus, for you Colombians, and I remember seeing uh, a copy of this on the um, bookshelf there. There were other fossil books. Uh, I think the first one I bought was the uh, Audubon book because it was cheaper. <laughs> and then uh, later I was able to get this one or it came to me as a Christmas present. Either way, it was a, a great inspiration for me because it's so wonderfully illustrated mm -hmm. and captioned. Uh, and he's arranged it systematically through the plant and animal kingdom. And the pictures uh, were unmatched for that day, you know, for the 1980s and and the 19, and 19, early 1990s when the second edition came out. Um, a lot of people publish books these days, but they're not involved in a lot of the production. The paper, the ink, you know, they may make some decisions. This book right here was not just written by Jerry, but it was designed by him. The plates and everything, the photographs. A lot of people don't do their own photographs. Jerry did everything because of his experience with publishing and printing and art design. And so it was just so well done and is obviously uh, an easy inspiration for many of us during that decade. Yeah, you've got the book, a copy of the book here in the studio, and there's a great giant photo on the front cover that's really kind of enticing. And as you were flipping through it, I agree with you, there were a lot of good uh, drawings and, and, and uh, photographs in that thing. So it really did look like it would be a great way for someone to get started because I think, you know, it's similar to a, a like a birding guide. If you see something, you want to be able to figure out what it is, and it looks like that's the perfect way to help you out with all those illustrations and pictures. It really is, and systematically is the way to go through the uh, plant and animal kingdoms. Very well organized. Um, so let's uh, let's do this. Why don't we go ahead and take our next break? Uh, we have a new feature on Creature Comforts. It's called Bird Note. Uh, they have a website. It's birdnote.org. But each week we'll have some interesting facts about birds. Uh, when we get back, we've got a couple of birding-related calls, but also we want to talk more with Jerry and George about the Red Hot Truck Stop near Meridian. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, so stay tuned. This is Bird Note. Holiday cards often feature gorgeous red cardinals against a snowy landscape. So it's easy to assume the birds have always been a colorful presence in bleak northern winters. But cardinals used to be southern birds. In fact, they were rarely seen north of Pennsylvania. By the second half of the 20th century, though, they were being spotted year-round throughout New York. And they were nesting as far north as Maine, the northern Midwest, and even southern Canada. There are three key reasons for the cardinal's northern march. Rising temperatures have reduced snowfall, so cardinals can continue to forage for food on the ground during winter months. Then there's human development. Cardinals are drawn to suburban habitat, so as people convert forests and prairies to cul-de-sacs, the birds soon follow. And finally, backyard bird feeders. By supplying birdseed, we humans help cardinals survive the harsh winters of higher latitudes. By the 1980s, as if to fully cement the bird's new turf, its official name was changed from just cardinal to northern cardinal. But the southeastern states, topped by Louisiana, still have the most cardinals per acre. The redbird, 
as Southerners call it, will always be a Southerner. Today's show brought to you by the Bobolink Foundation. For Bird Note, I'm Mary McCann. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today we have two guests in studio, paleontologists George Phillips and Jerry Case. If you want to join our conversation, you can give us a call. The number is one mpb ring Our phone number is one 672 You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Now, I want to get into this red-hot truck stop near Meridian, a real fossil hotbed. But we also have a, a sort of a bird identification uh, s- session going on. So let's return to the phones and say good morning to Kathy. Kathy, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning. Um, I was going to suggest that the lady that saw the bluebird at her feeder maybe look at blue grosbeak and see if that might be her bird. Yeah, I think that they would have already gone to South America by now. I think it's more likely uh, to be a blue bird, but instead of a, a grosbeak, but that's gross beak? Yeah, but okay. it's sure. But what she describes sounds like a grosbeak. You're exactly right. Uh, that, that just that was my first thought. Yeah, out, but, yep, I think yeah, that's uh, that's what she's describing. But I find that hard to believe that it's still. But, maybe it's just a straggler. Yeah, yeah. maybe so. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, Thank Kathy. You. Kathy right. Yeah. The last remaining grosbeak. Maybe we have uh, discovered here <laughs> in, in coming to Louisiana. Uh, Dudley is on the line as well. Dudley, always good to hear from you. Go ahead. Hey, Dudley. <laughs> I, I looked out and I saw uh, they were about, I counted 10, they were in this uh, this kind of bush very near the house. And I thought they were the uh, large peckerwoods at first. And then I looked closer and uh, I noticed that they were, the, the colors were just vibrant and they were larger than, than usual. And I uh, looked up, and I saw that there was one that was drinking out of the uh, the gutter on the side of my house, which was very close to where I was. Mm-hmm. And I looked, and I saw that there were two more sitting on the rail of the deck, waiting to have their turn of drinking. And I'm almost positive they were eastern bluebirds. I checked my book. Uh-huh. Well, that's see, I've is- seen eastern bluebirds, so that's what I'm thinking She's more likely to have seen than a um, than a grosbeak, right? Absolutely beautiful. I have never seen that many um, birds together, and the colors were just vibrant. And it was I all bluebirds, yeah. All bluebirds, all eastern bluebirds. So I checked my book, and I'm just almost sure that's got to be um, what she's seeing. Then I guess, but she, she said she had looked in her book and didn't see it. So. <laughs> my mind on which one it was and I kept looking and looking and then after I saw that up close I was just almost positive I, I have never had an experience quite like that yeah. those three sitting on the rail waiting to how they turn drinking out of the gutter um, <laughs> I, I don't mean to interrupt I'm enjoying your show so much and I feel like I'm taking away from the fossils uh, <laughs> oh, you're you. not interrupting though. we're always glad to hear from you Dudley <laughs> alright uh, Dudley thanks for your call 
Uh, this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. If you have a fossil-related question for our guests, George Phillips and Jerry Case, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. Email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. But anytime you want to call in and share what you've been seeing when you've been out uh, in the great outdoors, you can do that as well. Always want to hear uh, what's going on in your neck of the woods. So we're going to be talking about the Red Hot Truck Stop. And Jerry, earlier you were when you were telling us about your you know, your career and your interest in fossils, it seemed like you kind of just drove around and, and kind of came upon things and sort of took advantage of that. Give us, uh, if you would, maybe what it was like and and how did you discover the red hot truck stop was this just something that you came along in your travels uh well i um i originally um what happened was i uh, went out to um visit a friend out in uh in over michigan in over michigan and um we decided to drive down to florida to do fossil collecting and we ended up um uh, um at meridian but to backtrack a little bit i originally had gone up to sylvania ohio um and I uh, looking for uh, child bites, but what I had seen, I, I didn't find any child bites. They're very hard to find. So I, I saw a sign on a house nearby saying fossils for sale. So I went over there, and, and uh, the lady was selling these um, uh, child bites, but they were very high in price. So I, I said, I'm really only interested in shark teeth. So she said that she had a bunch of shark teeth that somebody had left with her, and she didn't really want them. Do I want them? So I said, yes. And uh, they were from Mississippi. <laughs> and uh, this is uh, where it all started. So anyway, back to, back to um, I, she gave me the, the fossils. I, uh, I went back home, and then I went down to Ann Arbor, Michigan. And, um, and when we, we stopped by Big, Big Bone Lick and a few other sites on the way down, and I, uh, eventually we got to um, Columbus and uh, the Lock and Dam's uh, site along the... Uh, uh, Tom Bigby River, and then from there we went to Meridian, and then we spent about two hours trying to find fossils there. Unfortunately, I didn't know uh, exactly where they were, but um, I saw a sign that we were sitting in a restaurant on the other side of the French Road, and I looked over and I saw a big sign saying Red Hot Truck Stop. So um, um, I um, was curious about that because there were bluffs behind it where the, um, these big... Um, uh, uh, cable cars were uh, stationed behind the uh, truck stop and um, the, the bluffs looked like they might have fossils on but meanwhile we went to a police station and asked the policeman there if he knew any place where he could find fossils so he said right behind the red hot truck stop <laughs> <laughs> that's how it all started yeah. and um, so Stan Hine was with me and Stan Hine and I were uh, started collecting and of course, I had a lot of experience collecting in New Jersey in the Glauconite, the green sand. So I, I saw in the bluff the Glauconite and the green sand uh, uh, and, uh, up to about 10 feet uh, off the, uh, the little creek, which I named the Crawdaddy Creek, because <laughs> it had these little lobsters in it. Um, well, I guess uh, we, uh, we call crayfish, them crayfish, these lobsters. Crayfish, like crayfish. <laughs> yeah, anyway, um, make a long story short. I've, I've, I kept taking little samples of the different layers, and I got near the top of the, uh, the bluff, and there was uh, about a two-inch seam, uh, and I broke into it, and teeth started spilling out all over the place. <laughs> so I, I started begging all the stuff, and, and, went, and, and then went down to the creek where there was a little water, and I uh, took a copper screen I had and, and, and washed the, uh, the specimens. 
and they're all different shark teeth, so big and small, and also coprolites and and mammal teeth and all kinds of other things, snake vertebrae, and I got very excited about it. That was 1979. Okay. And then um, the following year, I um, went back with a friend of mine, Paul Borodin, and we, we dug more, and we had the whole car front of the car hood filled with bags of shark teeth. <laughs> so um, uh, then I started doing a study of the, the species. I separated them in, in little boxes, and, and then I, I wrote, started writing papers on it, uh, writing a paper on it. And then um, eventually I, I went down there by myself uh, with a company car. Uh, the, uh, I worked for an air, con- air conditioning company at the time. And um, I spent nine days at Meridian, and I collected up about, oh, I guess, maybe 10,000 more teeth. Wow. And then I started writing the paper. And then um, the, the paper was finally published in 94 uh, in two, two parts. We've got two copies, yeah. uh, a, a copy of each right here. Yeah. But not only that, you reported it to scientists on the East Coast because there were other things other than fossil shark teeth there, fossil plants, fossil snakes, and Jerry eventually mm-hmm. published with someone else on the fossil snakes, plant, uh, as I said, plants, and mammals. Mm-hmm. You know, we really need to look into the history of who was the first to start looking because I went in like 1970, 71 with the geology classes from USM. So they knew about it a few oh. years before. And then um, I know the science education department at University of Southern Mississippi was going too. So I would have been known to we locals went, for years, yeah, but it so was never introduced to the scientific community. And so like somehow they just never published Jerry globalized it, huh? <laughs> yeah. this, this site. Yeah. But I wonder who, and do we have those fossils that were taken out prior to 79? Wonder where that stuff is. Um, I don't know about that. Some are at the uh, local college in Reading. Oh yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, oh good. Probably unfortunately, good. the be- biggest and best teeth were, were stolen. Unfortunately. Oh, because that's what we found primarily: sharks' teeth. But we found some fish bones and fish vertebrae. I remember that. Coprolites. Oh yeah, lots of little fish poop. <laughs> we probably didn't know how to identify that because I, yeah. Well, little brown uh, spots. Yeah, yeah. I've seen since I've seen George's, but I don't think back then because, I mean, you know, I was a kid. Well, this uppity New Jerseyite is credited uh-huh. in the literature as having, having introduced this site to the rest of the world. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. Again, it's sort of a serendipity sort of thing. You know, uh, Jerry, you were kind of going somewhere else and stopped somewhere and. You know, this led to that and that sort of thing. And they're, oh, yeah, it's over there behind that truck stop. And so, wow, what a, what a great find it was. That must have been really, really exciting. Got a couple calls to get to, so we go back to the phones. Our friend Lee from Woodville is on the line. Good morning, Lee. Go ahead. Good morning. I have um, two for you, paleontologists. One is, I want to ask about when these gravel trucks come in, when the county brings in, they have a lot of sedentary rock, and these rocks, I've known we go through them some places, they have, like, little fans, indentations on the rocks, little fans. Well, they know, what would that be? And there's a beautiful pattern. And also, um, down at the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola, in the early 2000s, I think they found a mastodon bone or a 
body of bones does he know did he ever excavate that particular um skeleton and what did they do with it and i hang up all right lee all right Hey, thank you for your phone call, Lee. Um, if you want the uh, papers or publications of both of those discoveries, uh, the gravel, uh, our gravels in the state uh, and surrounding states are very fossil rich, particularly the gravels of West and South Mississippi. Uh, and then the discovery near Angola, uh, that was published, too, in several different papers. But first about the gravels, um, again, if you call me at the museum or just dial the museum's number, uh, 601-576-6000, I can get you uh, the titles of those books and direct you to those locations. Um, but yeah, a, a gravel fo- fossil collecting is a very popular pastime in the state. It's one of the most accessible fossils uh, in the state. And those figures that you're seeing, I, whether you said fan or vein, uh, either way, fans. Okay. Yes. That, yeah, that's either way, it, it yeah. both words yeah. aptly describe bryozoan fossils, and these are colonial, microscopic colonial animals. That if if you if they didn't live as a collective, you wouldn't see them. So they live in in these colonies, and you see the colonies, but you you don't necessarily see the little individuals, or at least what remains as a fossil. And they form fan lines, and some some of these fans are spiral shaped. In fact, many of these fans and these uh, fans and of uh, rhizoans and the gravel fossils are spiral shaped, uh, but sometimes it's hard to uh, perceive the spiral. And, and explain those bryozoans. There, these would be small invertebrates that lived mm-hmm. in ancient oceans. So they're saltwater right. animals, and they're still alive today. Uh, and yeah, they're primarily saltwater. They you, you occasionally see them in in uh, freshwater. We occasionally, uh, maybe once a year, get pictures of this goo that people find stuck to logs and. Uh, freshwater lakes around Mississippi. Those are also bryozoans. Um, but anyway, uh, to the second discovery was made by Judith Chabot, or the excavation. I don't know who made the discovery, but uh, the excavations were done at LSU there near Angola and in deposits that are much younger than the gravel deposits, or at least the fossils are much younger. And that Macedon was published on in several different papers and uh, they found other things too, Lee. Uh, they found uh, horse fossils, early early stuff, uh, early mammals. Uh, this would have been about um, fifteen to twenty-two million years old, if I'm not mistaken, for those deposits down there. And so we find fossils of similar age in adjoining Mississippi, southwest and southeast Mississippi. But yeah, that's a remarkable discovery. And and just get in touch with me, and I'll get you the publications on those. All right. Uh, let's take our final break this hour. When we get back, we've got uh, Jesse on the line. We'll get to his call, and we'll continue visiting with our guests, George Phillips and Jerry Case. This is Crincher Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're back with more, so stay tuned. So do you suppose? Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. 
Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We have two guests in studio today. We've been visiting throughout the hour with paleontologists George Phillips and Jerry Case. Still time to work in a phone call. If you would like to join the conversation, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. We do have a caller on the line. As promised, we'll get to Jesse, who's called in from Goshen Springs this morning. Go ahead, Jesse. You're on the air with us. Good morning. Morning. Uh, I've been living out in the Goshen Springs area for about five months now, and over the past few weeks, I've been hearing a lot of coyotes howling in the area. I uh, haven't come across one yet, but um, if I do run across one in person, uh, any advice on uh, how to deal with them? Uh, are they dangerous? Uh, just any general advice on them? No, they're, I would say they're not dangerous. I can't imagine a, a wild coyote hurting you. I have enjoyed seeing a few in the wild. They don't usually... Usually they're not going to get caught by you. I mean, you know, in, in, vision-wise, you're, they're usually going to hide from you, but every now and then you can surprise one and get to see it, and I've seen them. In, no, I, in fact, I've always been told they're less harmful than a, a wild dog might be because they're afraid enough of people. Um, pets could be vulnerable, you know, under certain conditions. Uh, a, a very small pet or a very, you know, an old sick dog might be or something if, if coyotes were, were hungry. But, um, you know, basically they, they're after very small prey. They eat rats and mice similar to what a hawk might, and um, they'll take a rabbit. But I think rats and mice are going to be their primary food sources. Just All enjoy right. them. I love to hear the sounds at night. Oh, yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. That's okay. what I need to know. Great. All right. Thanks, Jesse, for your call. I think, again, that's a case of a lot of times, as you said, wildlife is not used to being around humans, and so they're oftentimes uh, maybe more afraid of us than we, we are of them. So, again, one of our rules here on Creature Comforts that we'd like to share is that uh, if you're in a situation like that, enjoy the wildlife from a distance, kind of give them their space, and, and you can usually get a great show as well uh, without having to worry about too much of a closer interaction. Uh, this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. So, George, not as you mentioned, as uh, Northeast Mississippi kind of being one of the fossil-rich areas of the state, but you can't find fossils everywhere. I guess. What are some of the conditions that went into creating a fossil uh, millions of years ago? Well, to have fossils in the fossil record is almost seems um, you know um, incredulous. Uh, most things are not preserved. The fossils that we do have preserved. Uh, represent only a fraction, a very fraction of a, a tenth of a percent um, of everything that's ever lived. But in fact, we do have fossil uh, deposits that are extremely rich with fossils and some that have very few fossils or just certain kinds of fossils. So the, the chemistry of the sediment that they're buried in has to be just so. There's a magical mixture of chemicals uh, that control the pH of the sediment. pH is the primary thing. If it's too acidic, the fossils won't preserve. And if it's too alkaline, the fossils won't preserve. Or in both cases, you'll get selective preservation of those things that can bear the high acidity or can bear the high alkalinity or low versions of either. 
uh, northeast Mississippi is particularly rich because of the mostly neutral or mildly alkaline sediments that we have up there. And that's very favorable to fossil preservation. Um, There's also just a a wonderful exposure of many fossiliferous beds up there. The bed, these fossil beds are not exposed everywhere. They're covered everywhere. So if you go to the arid regions of the country, they're exposed everywhere. (laughs) So you're more likely to find uh, fossils than you are in the east where we have a thick vegetation. There are whale fossils cropping out all over the arid regions of Egypt. Uh, The the government marks them or the universities mark them and many of them that they leave there. And if you walk out into an acre of land, you might see several um, whale skeletons just lying there waiting to be dug up and flagged just within an acre. Uh, You would see the same thing here in Mississippi. We have those same types of whale fossils from deposits of the same age, but they're all covered by vegetation. All right, let's uh, wrap up the show with a couple of questions. We'll go to Memphis. Steve's on the line. Good morning, Steve. Go ahead, please. Yes, I heard you all um, talking about a trip down to Michigan, which made me think when I was a young man up in Michigan, um, in northern Michigan, not the Upper Peninsula, um, there was a, a gentleman who used to make a quite a good living polishing Petoskey stones. Now, I know it's got to be some kind of a fossil, but... They were really beautiful, and I wondered, you know, have you ever heard of Petoskey stones and what they are? Fossilized what? Jerry, do you want me to handle that, or do you want to? Okay, all right. So, Jerry, I think pictures uh, a couple of them in the book, um, in well, in a couple of the books, but the Petoskey stones are a much coveted coral fossil. They're uh, colonial rugose corals. And they're very popular, and they occasionally show up in our gravel deposits in the lower Mississippi River Valley in West Mississippi because the river carried fossils from Michigan to parts of West Mississippi during the Ice Age and still do today. Uh, we find coral fossils fairly regularly, but the Petoskey stones, are, which are a particular type of coral and preservation thereof, we seldom see, but we, they do crop up occasionally. But that's what they are. They're a colonial so coral. How old are they? Uh, they date to the Paleozoic era. I'm not sure exactly if they're Mississippian or Silurian. So several hundred million years old, maybe 350 to 370 million years old. Wow. All right, Steve. Very cool. All right. Yeah, and, uh, and polish them up, and they're just gorgeous. Thank All you right. very much. Sure. Thanks for the call, Steve. Let's uh, go now to Carl, who's called in from Jackson. Good morning, Carl. You're on the air with us. Actually, it's Charles. Charles. Sorry about that. No problem. It was just a story. When I went backpacking out in Wyoming in the 70s when I was in college and in the Grand Tetons, and was told the story about the first uh, person, at least the first non-native person, to climb Mount Moran, which is about a 12,400-foot mountain there in the Tetons. It's a flat-top mountain. When he came down, he had a uh, bag and a quizzical look on his face, and people asked, what do you have? And he said, seashells (laughs) that he had found on top of that 12,400-foot mountain. Obviously, the water wasn't that deep at one time, but that was down lower, and it's been raised up because Tetons are still still rising about an eighth of an inch a year. But I always found that fascinating. There were seashells on top of a 12,000-foot mountain. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jerry has um, two publications, or at least one publication, on fossil shark beds in Wyoming, which would have been much younger than the uh, deposits in the Tetons, which are rather ancient. But the reason those shells are up there and fossils are found at high elevations is because of mountain building. 
So right. when you have distortions of the crust, uh, it, it just seems incongruous to to have uh, <laughs> fossil shells that high. But uh, in mountain building episodes, they get squeezed up to rather high elevations. There are mountains, or there are fossils uh, near the top of the Himalayas as well. Hmm. All right. All right, Charles. Anyway, I've always found that fascinating. Thanks for the show. Enjoy. All right. Thanks, Charles. Uh, that's going to wrap up for phone calls. Got a couple of minutes left, maybe about a minute left. Uh, so, George, if someone is out and about and finds something that they think might be a fossil, can they always come to or get in touch with you to try to get maybe more information on what they found? They can, but now they also have my partner here. Uh, we failed to mention that he is an adjunct researcher in the paleontology program, still recovering from uh, cancer, which he, we found out he had in February. But um, he is available to answer questions as well. So all people need to do is just get in touch with us at the museum, 601-576-6000, and they'll route your inquiry. And I've been routing quite a few inquiries to Jerry since I arrived, since he arrived. And it, not at that number, but probably what you'll need to do, go ahead and take a picture of something on your iPhone and oh, that's email true. the picture. George does many of those for me when I oh, absolutely. get pictures from other people or find things. And uh, it's technology has really helped us identify things pretty quickly. Oh, it has. It has. All righty. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio. Our show is produced by Java Chapman. And our call screener today, I think, was Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, who's not here, but we'll be back with us soon, Libby Hartfield and our guests today, George Phillips and Jerry Case, I'm Kevin Farrell. Inviting you to stay tuned because up next at 10, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.